Why did the military seize power in Sudan and why did it do so this week? How have Sudanese activists been responding to the coup and can they generate enough support to reverse it? Welcome to Connections, the Arab Studies Institute interview program on current events, policy questions, and new ideas. I'm Moin Rabbani, and for this episode, we're delighted to be speaking with Khalid Mustafa Madani. Dr. Khalid Mustafa Madani is Associate Professor of Political Science and Islamic Studies at McGill University in Montreal. His research focuses on the political economy of Africa and the Middle East. He is the author of Black Markets and Militants, Informal Networks in the Middle East and Africa, published by Cambridge University Press this year, and is presently completing a manuscript on the causes and consequences of Sudan's 2018 popular uprising. He has also published extensively on civil conflict with a special focus on the Sudan and Somalia. Professor Khalid Medani, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to Connections. Let's start by recounting how we got here. In 2018, a popular uprising led to the removal of Omar al-Bashir, who had ruled Sudan since seizing power in a military coup of his own in 1989. The past three years have not been without crises and conflict between the military and the civilian opposition forces that launched the uprising, including a coup attempt only last month. But transitional arrangements and what was termed a sovereignty council for power sharing were ultimately agreed. Give us a recap of these arrangements, please, and how they have played out. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Moeen. Thanks for having me on this show. It's a real honor and privilege. It's always an honor to, to speak on, on Sudan, especially with these events going on. Um, in order to understand the arrangements which have led up to this, uh, to this coup just this week, it's important uh, for those listeners and viewers who are not familiar with the, with the background that led up to, the, to these uh, power sharing arrangements between the civilian wing of the transitional government and the military wing of the transitional government. It's important just to recap very briefly um, the revolution itself of December 2018 that began in a small town of Akbara in the northern part of Sudan. Of course, it captured the attention of the entire world. Millions of Sudanese for the first time unprecedented across the social class, across ethnicity, across regions, although there had been many protests prior to that, this one was the largest. It was, as you know, um, uh, able to bring down 30 years of dictatorial reign of Omar Bashir, General Omar Bashir, who was ousted in April 11th, um, uh, 2019. It was really at that Sorry, time. Was it 19 or 18? But, uh, uh, his ouster was, was in 2019. The protests begin in 2018, but okay. his, his, his ouster from, uh, from rule was April um, 11th, 2019. Um, it was at that point that the military tried to do what they're, uh, what they're basically trying to do now. Um, in order to interrupt the protest and the full transition to civilian government and, and a democratic transition, um, they themselves uh, announced that they uh, were going to uh, kick Ahmed Bashir out, um, put him under house arrest, imprison him, possibly indict him. And then they called for a two-year transition period that they would oversee um, and eventually allow for uh, free and fair elections after that two-year period. Notice that that is what General Abdel Fattah Burhan is saying now as well. Uh, they were emboldened at that time by external regional patrons, in particular the Gulf countries that supported them. Uh, and because of that, they felt that they would be able to 
basically manage this transition and also stop the, the revolutionary potential of the very historic um, revolution that began in December of 2018. But something happened in late May of uh, 2019, and that is that um, a huge uh, uh, civil disobedience action occurred, not only in the city of Khartoum, but elsewhere. Once again, unprecedented, it was um, organized, orchestrated by uh, the Sudanese Professional Association, um, a newly formed association that spanned all of the different pro uh, professional associations in Sudan, including pharmacists, doctors, and lawyers. And so the real strength of civil society action um, and civil disobedience um, interrupted this kind of plan and strategy on the part of uh, Burhan and the other military that had ousted uh, Bashir. Um, it was at that point that uh, in a desperate move, uh, General Burhan oversaw, now it's become really clear, one of the most pivotal aspects of uh, this particular period that has great consequences for what we're going to talk about currently. And that is that uh, Sudanese, um, in the kind of um, way that the Egyptians did in Tahrir, um, uh, had a, a sit-in um, in front of the army headquarters. The sit-in began on April 6th that encompassed uh, millions of Sudanese, uh, extremely important in bringing down the dictatorial regime of Omar Bashir. But on June 3rd, um, what Sudanese called the Great Massacre of Khartoum occurred in which uh, the military and the security forces uh, led by not only Burhan, but, but uh, uh, Aymetti, who is his deputy and the the head of the militia forces, uh, rapid support forces, entered the sit-in and caused a great massacre, killing upwards of 200 people, um, uh, assaulting people, uh, the kind of litany of human rights violations, throwing bodies into the Nile River. This becomes a really crucial turning point. It galvanized the Sudanese opposition even further. Um, and it was at that point that the Burhan and his um, allies in the military establishment realized that they had to come with, up with a compromise. The opposition was too strong, civil disobedience was on its way. And what they did was uh, compromise with um, the major uh, opposition group, the umbrella group, the Forces of Freedom of Change, that encompasses not only the Sudanese Professional Association, but also the opposition political parties and civil society organizations, and also two very important youth groups, uh, Gerifna and Sudan Change Now, all of which really uh, coordinated these protests and this revolution. And it's at this point that the important power sharing agreement um, was agreed upon based on what in Sudan we call uh, the Constitutional Declaration. On August 17th, 2019, a power sharing agreement between Burhan representing the military and the forces of freedom of change agreed on a partnership <clears throat> that um, uh, contained three essential elements. A number so, and this of, is the Sovereignty Council, basically. Sovereignty you know, Council, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The Sovereignty Council essentially um, was uh, agreed upon. Uh, it comprises of five members of the military, five members of the civilian um, leadership and opposition chosen by the FCC, the Freedom of Forces of Change, and one civilian elected prime minister uh, that is agreed upon by both the military and civilian. That ended up, of course, being um, prime minister. Another aspect of it, very important for the current developments, was that there's supposed to be, of course, as you probably know, uh, a rotational presidency that Burhan, in particular representing the military, was supposed to uh, step down after 21 months and then to be replaced by a civilian leader chosen 
by the forces of freedom of change. He, of course, delayed that, um, and that had a great deal of consequences. But the idea was to eventually transition into a civilian leadership. And the third element uh, that is part and parcel of the Constitutional Declaration and the agreement was the establishment of a parliament, a legislative body, uh, with two thirds of the seats um, going to members of the forces of freedom of change. This is what the arrangements were in August 17th, 2019. Um, one thing happened that your uh, listeners uh, should be aware of in terms of the arrangements. We gradually begin to see the diminution uh, and the erosion of the power of the civilian wing of, the, uh, of this uh, sovereign council. Uh, and uh, a key element associated with that had to do with something called the Juba Agreement that was signed in October 2020. Very, very important. It is this agreement that gives us a clear picture of the gradual decline in the power and influence of the civilian wing of the Sovereign Council and the increasing power of the military. Basically, the Juba Agreement, as you may know, brought in uh, the, some of the important military insurgent organizations, particularly from Darfur, uh, the Sudan Liberation Army headed by Minawi, and also the Justice and Equality Movement, also from Darfur, uh, headed by, uh, by Ibrahim, who um, also used to be part and parcel of the Islamist movement in Sudan. These are the two essential uh, insurgent organizations that agreed and were brought in into the Juba Agreement. Um, following the Juba Agreement in December of that year, 2020, uh, Burhan did something that um, was very tactical to sideline uh, the civilian authorities, and particularly the civilian uh, leadership. And that is that he established something called the Transitional Partnership Council. The Transitional Partnership Council, um, in agreement with uh, this peace agreement to bring in these insurgents, basically changed the arrangements that you're talking about. And the way they did that, essentially, is to give more weight and more representation in this council, the Partnership Council, to the representatives of these two uh, militia insurgent organizations. In at the expense of the uh, civilian opposition force. At the expense of the civilian opposition. In addition, 25% of the ministerial portfolios were going to go to these insurgent military operations. Right? And in, in addition to that, there was going to be an additional military representative who happens to be the brother of Emeti. Uh, uh, in this transitional partnership. Who's the deputy um, head of the military and the sovereignty council, if I'm not mistaken. That's mistake. exactly right. And of course, the head of the very, very powerful um, Sudan Rapid Forces. This begins to be the first harbinger really of the militarization and the consolidation of uh, Burhan and the military and Hemeti, of course, and Hemeti's brother with these two insurgent organizations. Very importantly, the two major um, insurgent Southern Kurdistan, um, headed by two other individuals, um, Helu and uh, Agar, did not participate um, in this Juba agreement, although they were very much in the discussions. Um, in addition to that, some representatives of the forces of freedom of, cha of, and, uh, of and change agreed to also participate and be representative in this transitional council. Basically, in a nutshell, what this transitional partnership council did was to take executive authority away from Hamdok 
Uh, and basically to delay, and of course the majority of Sudanese knew, uh, basically the legislative, potential legislative authority. So this was going to increase the executive power of the military, but it was also going to act as basically a legislative body. Um, Burhan had calculated that this would be the best way in order to um, uh, basically uh, militarize and, and increase his power. Um, and, this, and defer um, commitments that had been made in terms of uh, civilian rule and, and, and the establishment of a legislative body. Absolutely. The idea is to have a gradual, basically, interruption and freezing completely of the transition uh, and the major objective and aim of the revolution, which is al-Madaniya, a full civilian mm -hmm. government. And this becomes really important. Now, if to, uh, to talk about uh, what has happened in terms of this week and why he decided to actually intervene. Well, well that, that, that was uh, going to be my next question, which is um, that according to the transitional arrangements that you've been uh, describing, uh, General Burhan, the, the head of the Sovereignty Council, was scheduled to transfer power to Prime Minister uh, Hamdok, uh, a civilian, next month. Um, yet, Burhan has now dissolved the council and, if I'm not mistaken, has renounced um, the, the transfer of power. And so, should we therefore understand the coup as an attempt by the military to abort the transition and retain power? And what were its motivations and objectives in doing so, if that was indeed the case? Yes, I think that um, uh, one way to put it, absolutely, it was a way to consolidate power. But I would argue further, it is more accurate to say that it was the last ditch effort to survive, to actually keep power. And that's a little bit different calculation. As you probably know, this coup was um, months if, uh, uh, in the making. Um, and there are a number of different elements. In addition to the Partnership Council, which didn't work because believe it or not, Hamdok did and the civilian wing of the government did establish uh, um, a number of different um, positive successes, including opening Sudan to the international community, improving its relationship with the international donors, uh, institutions, including the World Bank and IMF. Uh, of course, as you know, they got uh, lifted from the list of supporting terrorism. All of this, they implemented some fi financial liberalization to try to stem the tide of inflation. Um, all of that was uh, happening in the context of um, Burhan's calculations. Uh, and so what he did and what the military did, at least those in our alliance with him, of course, and Hemeti, was to test out um, this kind of the, their opposition. September 21st was very important. There was a coup attempt, as you probably know, that failed and botched. And, and that was kind of a test, uh, the Sudanese would agree to see whether there was an appetite and even support. When that uh, was um, not effective, um, what Burhan, uh, in alliance with those two um, insurgent leaders did that are in alliance with him, is that they basically orchestrated a protest in front of the army headquarters, um, in uh, October 16th, I believe, uh, to follow uh, the so-called Egyptian scenario of Sisi. I was going to say, it sounds very much like Egypt in 2013. Exactly, exactly. Remember, this is important because, of course, one of his reasons for, in, for the military coup is to save Sudan from a civil war. I think that you probably can understand that's very familiar kind of discourse that is used by our northern neighbors as well, or our particular person in the northern neighbor. That was a miscalculation. 
uh, on the part of Burhan, which is interesting in the sense that only a few days later, um, or rather uh, within a week, um, on October 26th, um, protest occurred in response to uh, the understanding that this was going to be uh, a coup that is going and to I think happen. it was the Sudanese Professionals Association that took the lead in uh, organizing the, Absolutely. Uh, the demonstration. Absolutely. It was in commemoration, of course, of the historic October Revolution of 1964, so the timing was perfect. Uh, but the Sudanese Professional Association that I've talked to and many Sudanese did not expect such a huge turnout. It was supposed to be a large demonstration in Khartoum. And what happened in the course of one day, you had uh, hundreds of thousands in Khartoum. And then uh, by the end of the day, there were protests throughout the country. In the north, even in Darfur, in the west, that, that many of your viewers and listeners know about, in the eastern part of the country as well. It was a clear signal to Burhan and attempted coupist uh, that we understand what game you're playing, uh, and we're going to show you that we uh, are going to be consistent in our, aim, uh, in our aims in terms of that um, aspect. That, of course, emboldened um, not only Hamdok, but believe it or not, the United States, uh, who were concerned about the tension, but of course, they sent their own envoy uh, Feldman to, um, to uh, uh, a day before the coup essentially to um, uh, bring uh, Burhan and, um, and Hamdok together. And this begins the, the first catalyst of the coup. It's the catalyst, but not the primary reason. And that is that there was an agreement that next month, they would in fact be a timetable for a transition from Burhan leading the sovereign council to Hamdok or civilian leading. So basically uh, the timetable was set uh, in these um, you know, kind of backdoor dealings and agreement, although the majority of people, as you know, knew that this was going to be the case. In, order, in other words, it was a meeting to enforce uh, the original contours uh, of the agreement itself. Get the transition back on the rails, essentially. Back on the rails, and also what that would do, of course, is to give uh, civilians the authority to implement the agenda as outlined in the constitutional declaration. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a day after that, not surprisingly, having attempted a number of different ways to basically usurp power, uh, it was clear for both, both Burhan and Hemeti in particular, um, and their allies um, in the Sudan Liberation Army, the leadership of the Sudan Liberation Army and uh, justice and equality movement, that they had no choice, uh, but from their perspective for survival to intervene in uh, and, and wage this coup, which is really important. That's the catalyst for the timing of the coup. But there are two other elements that give you the real kind of justification for my argument that this was a, a coup of survival, not just of consolidation. Um, one of them has to do with the agenda of the Constitutional Declaration. Um, just very clearly, uh, if you followed the speech of, um, of Burhan right after the coup, he said a couple of things that are very important. One of them, of course, is that he is uh, making a co correction to the revolution rather than a coup, and incredibly that this was not a military coup. Uh, this, of course, is to signal to the international community that he is not uh, <laughs> a dictator, but more importantly, to signal to the Sudanese that they want they could be co-opted or they should join in that, which is very important, arguing that he will have elections as he did in 2019. And uh, 
and uh, this and, time uh, deferred till 2023, if I recall correctly. 2023, exactly. And of course, establishing what uh, the protesters had always argued for, and that is a so-called technocratic civilian government. He has yet been unable to even appoint one civilian who's agreed to participate in his government, which is a, a big miscalculation. He also did two things. He repealed two elements, articles of the Constitutional Declaration that will give you a clear idea of what this coup really is about and the roots of the coup. One of them has to do with the article um, insisting on accountability for uh, the crimes of Omar Bashir in Darfur, Omar Bashir himself and his allies with the kind of the, uh, the canceled or um, illegal uh, National Congress party. Um, and another one is to have accountability and justice investigation into the massacres of uh, June 2019 in Khartoum in the city. Um, that becomes really crucial. The issue of accountability, as you know, is crucial not only for Burhan, but I would argue, and Sudanese know, much more even um, from Hamad Dagalu, Hemeti, because he, of course- he was heavily involved in uh, Darfur. And yeah, you can look at the Human Rights Re uh, Watch report of 2015, and there's a litany of his uh, personal uh, responsibility for an, a variety of different crimes against humanity. Remember, Burhan was also a commander during that period in Darfur. All of that is important. The concern becomes if, uh, if even Bashir and his cohort or uh, are uh, taken to the ICC for it open the floodgates. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The ICC is ready to do it. And this is something that the civilian government and spe specifically individuals in the government themselves who are now being really attacked individually, we can get to that later, uh, were responsible for pushing through. So that article he decided was going to be reformed, annulled. Um, the other article had to do with something uh, truly um, important. And I would argue um, maybe the most important, and that is the article associated with the commission for the dismantling of the remnants of the regime. This, I think, is was one of the most important aspects, not only of the Constitutional Declaration, but also of the first declaration of the forces of freedom of change. The entire Sudanese population understood, without taking a course in political science, uh, that there is something called a deep state, and that deep state must be dismantled. Remember, we have examples, as protesters know, from throughout the region, including in the northern part in Egypt as well. And that is an important article that Burhan immediately decided that he was going to annul. That article really is the real reason why you have this particular alliance uh, between Burhan himself and Ahmeti. Um, as you know, um, or you may know, or your listeners should know, this uh, commission uh, made a great deal of progress in really tackling uh, and bringing to task um, the large, vast um, uh, economic empire of the military um, that controls upwards of 70% of the economy. What uh, Hamdok did successfully before he was, uh, um, you know, put uh, kidnapped essentially was that he kept insisting time and time, and he was pushed by the civilian opposition to come out and uh, make a clear statement about um, disaggregating and separating the national economy from military interest uh, and to bring the military uh, under civilian leadership. And to take to task, and this is what this commission did, not only companies, but even individuals. Um, no one was uh, immune from investigation. 
uh, and particularly remnants of the National Congress Party, uh, the Islamists who had dominated the economy, and of course the vast economic empire uh, that uh, Burhan and particularly Hemeti yield. Uh, that kind of uh, uh, progress uh, with this anti-corruption and dismantling becomes really important. So One, it was very much um, an, an exercise in, in self-preservation of, of the military uh, establishment and not, and not just, um, let's say, a measure to retain their privileges. Absolutely, absolutely. Because uh, what happens if you have so, uh, full civilian authority, this agenda would have been implemented. Um, I uh, called people who are part and parcel of this process, and it's really amazing to me to see the kind of transparency, accountability, and progress that was made. A very well, clear procedural process uh, that had to do with uh, opening it up for appeal, uh, making, very, making it very clear that the whole process was transparent, um, and um, and really, really practicing due diligence in terms of those associated with the, with the former regime. That becomes it, extremely important. And it really raises, I think, the broader regional question of, of civil military relations, which I think has often been at the heart of what's been a very contested um, uh, transition, you know, um, Egypt to Sudan's north. Is, is perhaps the best example of this, but, uh, but there are also, of course, um, others throughout the region. But you know, having, having given us this context and given um, the developments of the past several days, what has the response to the coup been within Sudan, particularly um, by the civilian opposition that spearheaded um, the 2018-19 uh, uprising? Well, that's very important, uh, really, of, of course, a central question. It is, uh, to preface the, it, you know, the justification for what I'm going to say, it has literally revitalized um, uh, civil society. Um, and it has done that because in the context of uh, this transitional arrangements, uh, there have been a great deal of divisions, uh, not only between political parties, but between uh, grassroots organizations and even the Sudanese Professional Association. There was even a split between in, within the Sudanese Professional Association, those who actually um, participated in the partnership council that I spoke about, and those who rejected it. Um, in the uh, last elections of the Sudanese Professional Association, some of the uh, names that actually had headed and were leading the 2018-19 revolution were voted out of office. Um, uh, so what has happened in the context of this military coup, it is actually for the moment has um, galvanized and unified a whole spectrum, the entire spectrum of the Sudanese Professional Association, the grassroots movements that when I spoke to were critical of both the civilian leadership and SPA leadership, and now they're all working in tandem. The political parties without exception whether they're right, uh, conservative, like the Ummah party, whether they're to the left, like the Communist Party and the Ba'athist parties, have all clearly, quickly condemned uh, this coup. Uh, there is, at the moment, no partnership uh, that we see for Burhan and Hemeti in their uh, uh, kind of efforts to uh, camouflage this as not a military coup, and that's they're going to preserve the constitutional declaration and its principles and oversee uh, a civilian government. So what we see, and we can see it with the protest, is that's important. I would argue that that um, is, uh, is clear, not only in terms of what is happening now, but it's really clear because there was already a mobilization prior to the coup. In other words, the very... Uh, 
um, reason that you have such uh, mobilization and unification has to do with that uh, protesters and, and groups in civil society had known full well that this was coming. And so organization happened even prior to this uh, to this coup on Monday, which is really uh, important to, to keep in. And I think there's a big mobilization now being called for um, this coming Saturday throughout Sudan as well. Yes, um, October 30th, yeah, on, which is really important, El Milionia, which is really important already. That is, uh, there are different ways that I can't get into in terms of um, reorganizing the opposition and, uh, um, you know, in new, more flexible ways, let's put it that way, which is uh, really important. Yeah. Um, I do want to mention, uh, it's really important that, um, Unfortunately, the violence, um, because of, remember, it's not only the civil society groups that have learned uh, and uh, know what needs to be done, uh, but at the same time, unfortunately, the forces of Hemeti himself and his brother uh, and the um, rapid support forces and the militias um, are embarked uh, right now in a, a form of violence unprecedented even than, than occurred in the past. And that has to do with what I said, real uh, desperation and survival. The fact that they are basically the coolest. Uh, most Sudanese at this point are, are pointing a finger that it was really Hemeti himself that uh, has orchestrated much of this uh, in conjunction with allies, of course. That becomes uh, really important. And another element that I really feel I'd like to mention uh, has to do with an economic policy that um, the civilian government had been embarking on. And um, I thought and we all knew was very important and that was to regulate the the trade in gold um, mm. gold is sudan's most uh lucrative export it's about one two billion a year 99 percent of it uh, is actually marketed or exported to the united arab emirates um, it sudan is um, the third largest country in africa uh, that has gold and gold exports um, that is um uh, mostly smuggled uh, and has been smuggled. So uh, millions and millions, if not billions, are smuggled abroad. What the civilian government did in order to try to uh, fix the economic problems in particular and to generate revenue was to do something that the majority of Sudanese uh, really were very supportive of, of, of and that is to regulate the, the trade in gold, in particular not to, to nationalize it, but to ensure that at least 30% of it would go into the central bank. Um, now, you can imagine where the story is going. Uh, one of the most important, if not the most important traders is Hemeti himself, Hemeti, yeah. uh, who has a great deal of, uh, of interest in gold, and he owns the gold mines, and he uses that, of course, to finance these militias. Uh, what the civilian government and the Ministry of Energy, in fact, did was to, um, in many cases, they eliminated uh, some of the gold companies that were associated with the previous regime, and they had began regulations to bring gold to the comply with international standards associated with that commodity with the view that that would be the best way to generate revenue in order to meet the deep, deep economic crisis and the, the shortage of foreign exchange that the Sudan has. That is another story of success that posed a threat to Hemeti in particular, and also why his um, security forces are so strong. And we have to really, really keep that in mind. So um, Burhan and Hameti and the Sudanese military leadership as a whole, um, they're known to be supported by Egypt, by Saudi Arabia, by the Emirates, um, by Israel, each for its own reason. And uh, 
in some cases for common reasons. So do you see these regional states as kind of supportive spectators or as active participants in the events unfolding in Sudan? And what interests might they be seeking uh, to promote? Um, well, I think, Marini, you know, it's common knowledge what the interests of those countries are, you know, <laughs> in Sudan and in the region, which I think- You say Yemen. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think it's, so let me, I'm going to try to complicate it a little bit. Uh, the interest of the United Arab Emirates is essentially financial, uh, billions of dollars, which is very important. There is uh, reports by many organizations that some of the bank accounts for the gold trade, of course, are in Dubai. Um, there is interest of the United Arab Emirates in the port, in Port Sudan, which is really important. Uh, that I think uh, DP World is, uh, is operating Port Sudan. That's, that's right. Yeah, that's really important. Um, Saudi Arabia has more strategic, I would argue, than financial interest. Uh, remember that both Hemeti and Burhan um, were very useful for Saudi Arabia at the time that it was deeply involved in Yemen before it started to try to exit from, from that war, which is really important. Um, Israel, of course, has issues of normalization, and it's clear now some senior uh, Israeli officials have actually supported the, the coup and, and Burhan. Uh, there are others who traditionally support Israel in Washington who have not supported the coup, which is interesting, I think, and there's a reason for that. One of the reasons is the United States. Um, there are These regional countries have always been extremely influential as direct kind of countries to Sudan, but what we see now is something interesting that did not happen in 2018. And that is the United States administration was really taken aback and even angry uh, at uh, the dismissal of their envoy in such a manner. Uh, they've condemned, of course, um, the coup. Uh, they've uh, revoked that the aid package of 700 million, the European Union, the Canadians, uh, even Japan. Everyone uh, has been very much uh, condemning the military coup. The World Bank, as you know, has withdrawn support even yeah. after promising 2 billion in grants. And so um, that is the important, uh, crucially, the African Union has kicked Sudan out of the African Union. That was today, of, I believe. Yeah, mm -hmm. which is really important. I want to extend that it's uh, membership. Yeah, mm -hmm. I wanted to get that that part of the story, which is really important. Um, well, I, 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 I did want to ask you further about that, or did you want to say something more about the regional um, dimensions first? Well, I think it's important because what is happening, you'll see that I think it's important to see that uh, that the regional countries are keeping uh, quiet as if they usually do. But there is, as what happened in the past, uh, um, they have to deal with their own interest and also their you know, continued interest and relationship with the United States and the international community. Um, in the case of United Arab Emirates, of course, um, the notion of in, an unstable Sudan, I don't think is something that they perceive in their interest. Uh, the, the issue of, uh, of um, making, uh, you know, uh, regulating the gold trade is not necessarily going to undermine their great wealth so to speak, right? Um, uh, Saudi Arabia, the foreign minister, uh, ostensibly or reportedly has agreed with Anthony Blinken in a meeting uh, to condemn the military coup. I think there is a notion probably that uh, Burhan is not reliable uh, as a partner. Uh, certainly Bashir was not reliable in his later years. So they're kind of hedging their bets. And I think there's flexibility there, uh, especially if the instability in Sudan continues, because I really feel that that is something we as Sudanese are insisting on, that this military coup is not going to bring peace and stability and uh, economic interest for these countries, but rather instability. So I think that that is really important point to, to, to make. That's a, that's, that's a very interesting point. And, and now just to turn back again to the US role, 
Um, some have suggested that after cozying up to Egypt, Sisi and Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, after basically campaigning against them during the 2020 um, US election campaign, the Biden administration is perhaps keen to distance itself from yet another authoritarian uh, ruler who's been thrown into its lap. And that in Sudan, it can do so at a relatively low cost, certainly if you were to compare it to Saudi Egyptian or, or excuse me, US Egyptian or, or US Saudi relations. Do you, do you agree that, um, that, this, that, the, that the current developments in Sudan kind of um, present Washington with a fairly low cost opportunity to show that it, you know, um, uh, that it hasn't completely come back into the embrace of, of uh, dictators and, and, and uh, killers and so on who it campaigned against uh, previously, but has embraced once in office? Um, yes, uh, I, I do. I think that uh, the US administration, it's, uh, you know, they change of course, but this present one, at least those who work on the Horn of Africa, have uh, tried to, and I do believe that they believe Sudan is, is different. Um, I think that they take Sudan to be both a Middle Eastern Arab country, but also an African country. I think that for in, in terms of low cost, remember, it's not only their Middle East policy, but Africa policy. And so um, they would, uh, I think many would, would prefer to have a so-called success story in Sudan, a democratic success story, not only because of the Arab region, but also because of the epidemic, unfortunately, of military coups in Africa at the moment. And so Sudan, I think, would be really important. I think the calculation on the part of the administration uh, will eventually, as usual, um, really boil down to their strategic interest, of course. And I do believe that many uh, who know the region well understand that instability in the region uh, caused by this kind of military coup uh, will destabilize their interest. I, I think that that is, uh, unfortunately, in countries where there is a promise of stability, no matter the type of regime, uh, you'll see, um, my feeling is you'll see that policies align in those terms. In right. countries like Sudan, where you see a really strong opposition, and frankly, um, you know, individuals who can't even form a government at this point or administer a government and a country that has two large insurgent groups that are in opposition and have signed against the military coup, um, that destabilizes uh, Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Chad, um, uh, which Libya, you know, and that is the, the European Union came out very strongly because Sudan has been a conduit for immigration to Europe. That kind of chaos uh, and the fact that Burhan is not able to be reliable uh, from their perspective, uh, as you see the commentary, and at the same time, basically won't be able to deliver peace or stability. I think that's important. I also think that for the Gulf countries, they're looking at that closely because they have experience of that in 2018 and 19, when they thought that there would be a promise of stability, but it didn't work. And so I think that they're going to signal, the US is signaling to their allies uh, that this is um, something to consider and to see if uh, there would be a way to condemn and push uh, continue in this transition to civilian government. The signal of the African Union, which is close to the United States, is a really one indication of uh, uh, when the African Union kicks you out of the organization. That's important. I will also so, want so to the message is succeed quickly or get out of the way. 
Exactly. Now, remember, the Arab League also made an extraordinary, extraordinary <laughs> comment that they too were uh, opposed to the coup. So they're hedging their bets. Obviously, we know what the Arab League is about as, as well, but they also are unsure, but waiting to see. And so I think that that's important. Uh, the task now is to ensure that the violence is uh, condemned uh, and that that is very clear. And um, what uh, and for Sudanese, and I have I want to speak on the part of the Sudanese at this point as well. And that is that the human rights violations, the killing, the tortures that are increasing, not only have to be condemned, but they but but there has to be an intervention because we're talking about uh, someone who was responsible for the deaths of. 200,000 people, the you know, displacement of 1.2 million, the brutal killings, rape, assaults of over 200 uh, you know, young um, uh, boys and men. Um, we're talking about this kind of individual, this kind of force that is now uh, you know, enacting havoc against protesters whose major objective is Madania, civilian uh, rule, and their major uh, method, Silmiya, peace. Mm -hmm. You know, insisting on peaceful civil disobedience. I think the international community is very clear about that kind of aspect. And if there's a threat of sanctions, that would be something that may have to be considered. And and finally, um, if if we look ahead to to the days, um, even perhaps weeks um, around around the corner, um, what's your prognosis about how things might develop in Sudan? Now, I you know I realize. Um, one can only speculate so much, but what are perhaps um, the main issues, those of us who want to get a better understanding of where Sudan is heading, um, should be watching, watching for? I think to, it's, it's the best way to answer that question. It's, it's always difficult to ask, uh, answer definitively, as, the, uh, as journalists like to say, as the situation remains fluid. But, um, but there are indications in terms of looking at history and past practices in terms of different uh, military coups. The past ones have been able to consolidate and reform based on a, a alliance with some semblance of a constituency, um, whether it was uh, in the 19. Uh, 60s, you know, the communist and socialist in the 1980s, the Islamist, which played such an important role in forming governments, that becomes important. The, that uh, question can be answered by a couple of things. One of them, of course, is absolutely the strength and commitment of uh, these uh, heroic uh, Sudanese, um, you know, uh, across the board, which continue to insist not only on um, commitment and protest, but also to deep organization at great risk. And it's happening, if you look at the protests, they're happening literally in every state of Sudan, which is a very important indication, including my mother's hometown of Wadi Halfa, which is all the way up north in, in the Sudan near Egypt. Um, the other part of the equation, obviously, is the strength of the coercive apparatus. Um, uh, and uh, Hemeti's uh, power in terms of uh, doing that. Um, so that is why violence will occur. But over time, uh, violence, unfortunately, is never enough. What, is, uh, what Burhan's trying to do is to find some coalition in Sudanese political society uh, and even figly figures to really get involved. This is why the remnants of the Islamist movements and the National Congress Party are very, very uh, crucial to him. Remember- Because they were um, closely aligned at various stages with Omar al-Bashir during the past several decades. 
Yeah, I, they were allied with Ahmad Bashir. And at the same time, they were, of course, allied with Burhan, even though he's not a card-carrying Islamist, he was obviously chosen and appointed and nurtured and patronized by the Islamist and Ahmad Bashir. One of the most important statements of Burhan that you should really focus on was, number one, the false claim uh, that he's saving the country from racism and civil war. But the other one was even more important, and that is that he uh, wanted a so-called more inclusive uh, civilian government, by which he means, of course, is to bring in uh, remnants of the Islamist movements. Uh, and that becomes really important. The fact is that Sudanese know that full well. The National Congress Party stalwarts have been uh, sanctioned, and many of them are in prison uh, and awaiting detention. But there's no question that he would prefer to pull uh, those that uh, he relied on in the past, uh, remnants of the Islamist movements. That's why you'll see among the protests, uh, don't uh, you, you can see that you can do the analysis by the, the, the slogans of the protesters who continue uh, even in this at this uh, at this stage to focus also on the Kazan or the Islamist, uh, making sure that uh, they are uh, full aware, fully aware that the only constituency so far that he can uh, uh, perhaps co-opt into this so-called transitional civilian military government would be remnants of the Islamist. Uh, right now, all bureaucrats, ambassadors in their tents have uh, condemned the coup. Everyone is condemning the coup, uh, including uh, ministers uh, and uh, and and. Um, others. He's, of course, as you know, uh, kicked out not only the ministers at the national level, but also local uh, local appointed governors in order to consolidate his rule. So I think that to answer your question, we have to look to, to what extent he's able to co-opt that. It looks at this moment that he is not able to find that coalition, mostly because uh, no one sees a benefit in it. Uh, that is really important. So in addition to the coercive apparatus and Hemeti and uh, the lack of support that Burhan has. Another crucial element uh, that we feel as Sudanese, I'm gonna say more subjectively, has to do with the international community. And here, regional countries are crucial. Um, uh, the United Arab Emirates is crucial, Saudi Arabia is crucial, Egypt is crucial. Uh, remember, these are countries that are in alliance ostensibly with the US, and now we have Russia who is deeply involved. Uh, in uh, the surveillance, security, and even um, military uh, training, and that's clear as well. So um, those calculations- Sorry, just to interrupt, um, and Ethiopia as well, given the, the whole issue over the um, Great Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, is, is, would you expect yeah. Ethiopia to be a factor? Ethiopia will not be a factor in supporting Burhan. Um, the military has made these statements that they are opposed uh, and they took a position against Ethiopia with respect to the border conflict. So that's really uh, important. Um, but the region is complicated. Uh, Egypt, of course, is very, very interested. I'll say, let's say the Egyptian leadership is very interested in a partner that would give them the green light in terms of these negotiations and their, their particular position towards Ethiopia. So um, for, for Sisi, to the extent that he feels that Burhan would deliver, as opposed to a more complicated civilian democracy, that's really important. As many would say, it seems at this moment, possibly, that it is uh, the fear of democracy rather than Islamism that seems to be guiding the policy of the Egyptian leadership. And so we really want to, to really emphasize that. The last F issue, of course, is that is uh, Sudan capable of a civilian democracy? And I would argue, uh, yes, uh, it, it really is, because civil society has mobilized. And, um, and, and this is why I mentioned, despite all of the discussion of the weaknesses of civilian governments, I wanted to itemize 
the actually interesting success, successful steps that a, a relatively weak civilian government had, had actually implemented. And that threat of democracy and that threat of um, a more expansive participatory uh, political system is the main reason why we saw this military coup on Monday. Well, um, Sudan, of course, had a very inspiring um, popular uprising in the mid-1980s, um, which also resulted in not only um, an elected government, but a head of state who voluntarily um, stepped out of office, Suwad al-Dahab, I think. Um, uh, mm -hmm. And one hopes um, that history, in this case, will be about to repeat itself. And... Uh, will be watching Sudan very closely in the coming days and weeks with uh, fingers crossed that uh, the transition returns um, to its uh, proper course. Uh, Khalid Mustafa Madani, I'd like to really thank you for sharing your insights and expertise on the context of current developments uh, in Sudan with uh, connections. Thank you very much, uh, Moeen. It's been a real honor and um, privilege. I hope that my, the information was useful and Extremely. I uh, want to thank so many uh, people in the region who have, you, you can imagine the amount of support. Uh, uh, everyone wants that, this example to continue. So uh, I think everyone's crossing their fingers. We'll see what happens. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you.